In the fashion world, there's no one quite like Pierpaolo Piccioli. The creative director of Maison Valentino is known all around the world for his ability to, as he says, take a new picture of something that you know already. For Valentino's Promenade Fall 2022 Women's Wear Collection and Valentino After Club Fall 2022 Men's Wear Collection, Piccioli takes signature styles from the house's heritage and shows them in a fresh light. Titled Portrait of a Generation, the collection includes stripes and zebra pants, capes and blouses, prints and embroideries. The campaign was photographed on the street at Arnold Circus in East London. As for the models, Piccioli says, we wanted to dress them the way they dress in their own life. It is about individuality and uniqueness, which connects to my work in couture. Taken the entire collection at Valentino.com. Happy Saturday. It is June 18th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. And to all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day weekend. Gentlemen, I think you should celebrate all weekend long, and we've got an issue of Airmail that basically gets you carte blanche just to stay in bed. What better way to celebrate, right? Yes, indeed. By all means. My muse this weekend is going to be Joan Collins, who stars in our perfect ending column this week. Yeah, loaded with Collins-esque wisdom, right? It's like everything that she says I want on a t-shirt. When does she wake up? When I'm rested. Her favorite work of art, my Warhol. Her favorite hotel, Claridge's. Can't argue with that. Her biggest flaw is impatience. Same. And she prefers to escape to her beautiful villa in the south of France. So actually, let Joan be inspiration to many of us this summer. She's clearly living the good life exactly on her own terms. Exactly. So where should we begin this week? Oh, we've got a lot to talk about. Shall we start with January 6th? Yeah, that seems to be the topic of the week, right? The hearings on Capitol Hill. And we've got a terrific perspective this week in The View From Here. Our columnist is none other than Graydon Carter, our co-editor-in-chief. Graydon sometimes comes out with a doozy that just makes you laugh out loud. And for me, it was the second sentence in his column. He starts it off, one thing you have to know about Trump, he's like an orange-topped mollusk. He moves uninvited from place to place spreading a wide tail of ooze, and then he moves on, leaving a stain that, try as you might, you just can't get out. Oh, Graydon, that really encapsulated the entire Trump situation that we've been left with. We've got the Trump influence, unfortunately, on New York. He tore down the Bonwit Teller building and installed Trump Tower in its place. This was definitely not an improvement. And it turns out he basically did the same thing to the country. Charming. Graydon, as he reminds us, and some of you may know this, he has a unique vantage point in that he has known Trump longer than just about any other journalist. And that's because in the early 1980s, Graydon was assigned a story on him by GQ magazine. It was his first national exposure. And Trump, in that interview, granted a ton of access, more than, as Graydon says, I ever wanted or needed, spent the better part of three weeks with him in his office and around construction sites. And so he sort of saw the beginnings of the Trump persona then and has charted it over the better part now of 40 years now, unbelievably. Have you been watching the January 6th committee hearings? Yeah, it's pretty riveting. And I have to say, I was skeptical on how all the taped testimony would play without it being live and in the same room as the Congress people. But it's transcended to a different kind of place. It's almost made it more television worthy. Paul, but it reminds me of the kind of terrible reality TV show that you hate watch. The villains are atrocious. The heroes are ineffectual. And everyone else is simply along for the ride. We've seen a lot of 
absurdity in American politics over the past eight years, but this is really taking it to new levels. I mean, the theme of this issue, Michael, could really be Americans behaving badly. It's a terrific perspective from Graydon. Please read it. It's quite enlightening. Yeah, come to the email offices. We've got Trump's correspondence all over the place. I think most of it's in the bathroom, but there might be some other pieces scattering about. The man, the myth, the legend. Okay, well, all right, Michael, the theme of the issue really could be Americans behaving badly because not only do we have the Trump-era charlatans, but we also have, it turns out, the Glocker moms. This is a great phrase coined by Claire Malo, who is one of our associate editors here at Airmail. Claire has investigated this bizarre trend of the mom set, largely in the South, using guns like accessories. And she is here to tell us all about the phenomenon of the Glocker moms. Welcome, Clara. Okay, so Clara, tell us first and foremost, what exactly is a Glocker mom? So the idea of a Glocker mom is it's essentially a soccer mom, but picture her with guns. These are women who are young mothers. They are really invested in their children's safety and protection, and they think the best way to protect themselves and their families is through owning guns and bringing guns where they go. And of course, you can see this most of all on Instagram now, right? Yes. I think that the idea of women as the face of the gun industry is not new, but Instagram has provided a platform for basically the gun industry to have free marketing. These women are able to post and promote this certain kind of lifestyle and get other women to join in and see what the Glocker moms are doing as kind of this almost feminist act of self-protection and protecting your family. How many of these women did you speak with, Clara, and what were your conversations like? I spoke to a handful of women. I think that in each conversation, one of the first things they would say is like, no, it's really surprising I'm even speaking to you. And I think if you look at the ratio of how many people I reached out to and how many people responded, you really see that there's a huge kind of anxiety or hesitation to speak with reporters, especially reporters who aren't on incredibly conservative platforms. But my conversations actually ended up being really long once I did reach women. And we talked about gun control for most of the conversation, but I think their ideas about guns are actually so tied to their entire lifestyle that they would go off into conversations about abortion or kind of other conservative issues. And we're very open once you got them speaking. Claire, one of the things I'm sure Ashley is interested as well as I am is, I mean, they're all on Instagram as these mom influencers who like to carry guns. You see a picture of them holding guns with their babies. But it seems the way they've also sort of gained traction, it seems, is to make this a lifestyle or fashion kind of thing as well. And they, they seem to all have their own fashion brands. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. The like gun apparel market is really growing. And I think women are at the forefront of that. A lot of these women were talking about not compromising on their style. They're kind of more like feminine aesthetic when choosing to concealed carry and own guns. And so this industry has really blossomed because women are thinking, okay, well, I want to bring a gun into the gym. I need leggings that make that work. I want a fashionable purse so I can go to my kid's soccer game and and concealed carry. It's definitely kind of frightening when you look at the pictures and you have women holding young their young children and they have their guns strapped on under or in their bags or wherever it is. So 
it definitely is a fast growing industry. And these are known as the quote unquote defense Debbies, right? In the gun world? Yes. That is a term that was kind of coined in the marketing process when the gun industry was trying to get more women. And it's actually been a really a long history of the NRA and the gun industry hoping to tap into this new market because since the 1970s, basically gun owners were too white, too old, too male, and they were just running out of new people to buy guns. And so in making sure that they were reaching women, it's half the population, they were able to profit a lot. And so it's been this massive marketing push to, to reach women and especially mothers. Claire, when you spoke to these mothers, did any of them seem remotely concerned that their children would somehow get their hands on these weapons? So the first bucket of women, so 64% of women who own guns say that they own guns for the protection of their children and for their families. That's their leading reason for owning a gun. And in speaking to women who gave me that reason for why they had guns and why they concealed carry, none of them were concerned about that. They all said only someone who's never touched a gun, who's never had a lesson with a gun would have such a concern. I know how to work my gun. It's just a tool. I can. It's not going to just fire. They were not at all concerned. I did speak to a few women who were in the other bucket, which was I guns are part of my lifestyle. I've had guns my whole life. I'm not getting rid of my guns and I need to make sure that my home is a safe environment. So they got into learning more about the gun. And those women were more likely to say to me, I read the articles about the kid getting the gun and shooting his sister or shooting the father or shooting himself. So there was actually... In general, I'd say a huge hesitancy to to equate owning a gun with putting your child at risk of gun violence. Well, speaking of children, tell us a little bit about a influencer with, as you said, 50,000 followers on Instagram who watch her review of guns. And her name is Autumn's Armory. Yeah. So Autumn is nine and it's an Instagram, I believe, run by her father. So you have to be 13 to be on Instagram, but not if, if your legal guardian or someone older is actually running the page. And she does these kind of viral gun reviews. And it's, I think, kind of spine chilling to look at the content. She's holding these massive military grade weapons. And it's funny because on some of the platforms that talk about her reviews, people will comment and be like, oh, Autumn needs to learn how to shoot a gun without blinking. Autumn's hands are so small that she needs two fingers on the trigger when she should have one, whatever the thing is. And so it's kind of amazing to, to look at this content and see how there's this huge population that's responding to it positively and actually being like, oh, well, she's not as advanced as she should be as a, a nine-year-old girl with these massive guns. What really struck me is how these women are treating guns as accessories, like it's almost just fashion items, right? Versus weapons of mass destruction or weapons of destruction, if you will. How does that square for you when you were speaking with them? Were you struck by the language that they used to describe them? Yeah, I think that... It's really important to remember that this all kind of stems from financial motives. The gun industry, the NRA, their point is to get guns into as many people's hands as possible because that's how they make money. And so if you look at the history, you look at this drying up of the people who are going to buy guns and you look at this kind of pivot in marketing and saying, okay, well, if we market guns as way of self-protection and we look at like younger women as the target audience, we can really expand into new populations. And it ends up kind of lining up with even pushing for state by state legislation. So you have like stand your ground laws. And 
actually a change of public opinion towards more women thinking, I need guns for self-protection. I'm in danger. Like they, the NRA purposely made women feel like a strange man's going to come up and attack me. It's the same thing with rape where people think it's going to be a stranger, but it's not usually. And I think that's all really tied up in these women's heads. They always think that they're in danger. A lot of them when talking to them were like, I, I asked one woman, well, why would you ever bring a gun into a gym? And she was like, oh, well, you think there's never going to be an active shooter in a gym? And they really think like that. They always think that there are moments where they're going to be in danger. And one, actually two women described having a gun, like having a spare tire in your car. It's just something there for protection. And if it's not there, that's the moment you're going to need it. So I think that this whole idea of it being an accessory is kind of like this is just because women think like they can't go anywhere without it. They need it on them. And so they're making ways where that's possible through bags, through belts, through leggings, through waist trainers, whatever it is. Here I was thinking like, I'm the bad guy because I want to get fireworks for 4th of July. Well, and they were even this one woman said to me, I know a bunch of teachers who will illegally carry to school because they're these brave souls who want to protect their classrooms. So we don't even know where the guns are in schools, which is great. Sometimes it makes me think that we live in two countries, Michael. It's an eye-opening piece of reporting, Clara, and I would urge everyone listening to read it. Because as much as you want to close your eyes, it's important to know what's happening. And Clara's got this terrific piece of reporting that I said is a real eye-opener. All right, guys. Well, thank you. That was really interesting, and we wish you a wonderful day. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Clara. I hope the next time we're talking, it's about something slightly cheerier. Okay. Well, thanks for being on with us today. Bye, Clara. Yeah. Wow. So pistol packing mamas coming at you on Instagram. But we also have another very provocative essay this week, and it's by David Kaufman, a regular contributor to Airmail. And it is rolling off of a proposal that just surfaced in California called the California Task Force to study and develop reparation proposals. Now, David is a native San Franciscan, and he has some sort of unique thoughts on these proposals, right, Ashley? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, let's let David tell us all about it. He's a journalist. He's a writer for Airmail. He's been a former digital director at Condé Nast, and we're thrilled to have him here. Welcome, David. To capture the spirit of Valentino Promenade Fall 2022 Women's Wear Collection and Valentino After Club Fall 2022 Men's Wear Collection, creative director Pierpaolo Piccioli headed to Arnold Circus in East London. There, the house photographed a campaign that celebrates the art of individual style. Community is also an important focus for Piccioli. At the heart of Arnold Circus is a raised garden, which is cared for by local volunteers. To honor this project, Valentino has made a donation to the Friends of Arnold Circus. This notion reminds him of his hometown, Rome, which finds its own sense of harmony from the clash of eras, people, and cultures. Taking the entire collection at Valentino.com. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So first of all, what inspired you to write this story and what were you thinking about as you came up with your argument? I've thought about reparations quite a bit. It's a very important topic to me personally. On one side, I'm African-American, so reparations is very much a topic that people are discussing right now in regards to slavery, particularly because today is Juneteenth. On the other side, I'm also Jewish. I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and I know very much how the impact of compensation or reparations for Israel during its early years from Germany the Holocaust was such an important part of that nation's founding, but also a controversial part of that nation's founding. So it's something I have been thinking about quite often. So David, I think as you lead with your story, the impetus for your reflection on this was the California Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals. Can you tell us about that and how 
Gavin Newsom sort of has been championing that. So what got me thinking about reparations now is this. So I'm a California native. I was born and raised in San Francisco, and I obviously pay close attention to California news. There was a report that was released about 10 days ago detailing a comprehensive plan that was undertaken by Gavin Newsom, the governor, to study potential strategy for implementation of reparations for African-Americans. It's the first of its kind on a state level. It's the first of its kind that sets out a clear pathway for reparations. Again, on a state level, there's never been anything this sort of monumental. And one of the key things is in order to qualify for reparations, you actually have to have be a California-born person, and your family has to have been in the country at the end of slavery in 1863 or 1865, however you want to define it, and that would make me qualify. So it was very interesting that suddenly there was a proposal on the state level by a government that would set out a pathway for reparations to which I could theoretically be eligible. In your essay this week, you have a big problem with reparations, right? Yes. It's not that I have a problem with the notion of reparations. Obviously, African-Americans, of of which I am one, our families were brought here in chains uh, against our will from Africa and spent centuries of forced labor that was uncompensated. So on a very basic level, some sort of accountability or atonement or perhaps even compensation is due. The, The issue I have with reparations is... As I write in the piece, for me, the idea of paying people off for their injustice, for their suffering, for atrocities committed against them, it's the American way. We write a check to get rid of our problems. And in doing that, yes, many African-Americans in far greater numbers than white Americans need financial support owing to the legacies of slavery, owing to the legacies of racism. But once you take a check from somebody, once you are compensated with money, once you are quote unquote paid off, then you enter a realm where your grievances have been addressed. We have paid you for your pain. We have paid you for your suffering. We have compensated you. So now it's time to move on. And, and that doesn't necessarily solve the problems, the, like the long-term institutional problems that have resulted from slavery, have resulted from Jim Crow, have resulted from institutional racism. But more importantly, it silences people. And it silences their ongoing pain and ongoing trauma and ongoing grief. And it's that notion of money used to silence people or money used to potentially silence people, which is what could happen through reparations. That is the problem with the notion of reparations that I have. For you, they're kind of a non-disclosure agreement writ large, right? As you say in, in your story, right? Yeah, to me, they just sort of feel akin to... What happens when people are sort of forced out of a company against their will or have a grievance against a corporate entity? To me, they, these sort of feels like feel like a state-sanctioned NDA. Again, as I say, once you accept money for a grievance, then you begin to forfeit your ability to claim additional compensation, additional or even additional compassion for a grievance. And I think, again, like this notion of additional compassion is also equally important because the after effects, the ongoing effects of slavery and Jim Crow and and racial injustice, they won't end with a check. But for the folks who are writing that check, aka white people, it doesn't necessarily have to be the government white people, but the large population of white people who have to buy into this process, I could very much see them saying, okay, people, we, okay, African-American people, we paid you off. You need to, to be quiet and move on. And that is what worries me. 
David, you write about your own experience recently refusing to sign an NDA when you left Condé Nast. What was that process like for you when you were grappling that decision? How did you feel after you took it? It was a difficult process. On one level, everybody needs money. I'm like a half-time single dad, and I don't come from a family of vast resources. But at the same time, I began to think about what were the implications of taking an NDA? What were the implications of taking money? And the implications were that I would have to silence myself until the end of time, and that I would basically have to act as if whatever happened to me there during my time at the company never happened. And at the end of the day, it really, after a brief bit of negotiation, after consulting with more than one lawyer about my potential for legal retribution, et cetera, et cetera, I really sort of came to the conclusion that no amount of money they could pay me would be worth signing an NDA. Between you and me and our vast audience, sure, $100 million might have felt good, but that wasn't going to happen. But in the reality, in the scope and the reality of, of how the world actually works, I sort of came to the conclusion that no amount of money would be worth signing an NDA because no amount of money for me would be worth saying that what I experienced at that company didn't happen. It's such an interesting parallel that you draw, David, and such an incredibly provocative argument. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed writing it. Michael, do you have any other questions for David? I have one last question, David. Obviously, reparations, as we know, complex, complicated emotions and insights and ideas on each side. Some of this, though, is you said with how do you feel about someone who would say, you know what, I do need that money and I would welcome that money. Do you have any animosity towards someone like that? I mean, my initial response is I totally support you, brother. I mean, there are many different kinds of Black people living in many different kinds of Black communities with many different types of relationships with our past history and also many different types of financial situations. So uh, the good, the most important thing about being you know, part of this country, especially on Juneteenth, especially on the day that honors the emancipation and our path to freedom, is that the ability to make our own decisions. And this is my personal opinion, but folks who have a different opinion, for me, is extremely valid. And I totally support it. Well, it's a powerful and well-thought essay, David, and really grateful to you for, for writing it for us. And I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. I was thrilled to write it. Thank you very much. Oh, Michael, Trump's pretty bad, but then again, so is Prince Andrew. It turns out that the most problematic royal of the moment, which is saying something, is in an even more precarious position than ever. Poor thing. So, Ashley, why don't you tell us all about it? I know you've got a favorite radar for Prince Andrew. Well, it's so funny. Every time I read a story about Prince Andrew, it's basically the same story, which is, oh, he's having yet another bad week. Okay, so he was sued first by a French woman over a debt that was related to this pesky Swiss chalet that he finally unloaded. And then earlier this week, we learned that he was banned from taking part in the Garter Day procession around Windsor Castle, which is basically a situation in which they wave regally to tourists and the cameras wearing velvet robes and hats. The Prince of Wales and the Duke of Cambridge looked at the optics and then thought, mm, no, thank you. This was Prince William and Harry, clearly. And the Queen heard their view and made the final decision to ban Andrew. So he was able to attend the private aspects of the ceremonies surrounding the Jubilee, such as the investiture and a lunch, but he had to stay out of sight according to the son, quote unquote, for his own good. Ouch. But it turns out like Andrew just doesn't seem to understand what's happening here. And he is now petitioning his poor mother to reinstate him as a colonel of the Grenadier Guards. Now, this is an honor that he was stripped of in January, right before he paid millions of dollars to settle the sexual assault case brought against him by Virginia Dufre. By taking away his titles, that was the end of the PR horror, alas, but he doesn't seem to get it. He thinks that he's paid his dues or whatever, and he wants his title back, blah, blah, blah. 
this guy, I mean, he's going to be the cause of Elizabeth. Can you imagine like her having to deal with this, like her little baby son, like mommy, 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 like just go away quietly, go to the Middle East, raise your money and just carry on with things. But no, I want my fancy uniforms and I want to parade around like a toy soldier. Yeah. We've also got some more Prince Andrew-esque news on the horizon, which is that it turns out that Ghislaine Maxwell is going to be sentenced this month for sex trafficking in New York. And she's apparently trying to petition to spend most of her sentence in a British prison. I suppose those are friendly than the American ones. Who knew? Hmm, who knew? Tough to be the Duke of York. It's a long-running show that always gives you a new episode. Mm-hmm. Season 22 of The Crown. Here we come. Okay, well, we know who's been behaving badly, but presumably there is some quality left in the world. Michael, please, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. I have two things. One comes from an airmail contributor, Mark Seal, who has released a pretty great new story about a real-life grifter, and it is available on Audible audible only. It's called Love Until Death, and it's a story of how Warner Music's Peter Eichen, a big guy who had guided the careers of everyone like Elton John and many other people, became ensnared in the web of a very seductive con man and never got out. It's on audible.com. But my second pick is one of my favorite podcasts, and if you don't know it, now's the chance to discover it. Smartless, which is hosted by Will Arnett, Justin Bateman and Sean Hayes. I always think it's one of the most entertaining hours and there's never a shortage of laughs, of course, with those three guys. But you often get some that are pretty revealing and for their 100th episode, they really delivered. And this is a chance for you to hear what the show is all about. They bring in Bradley Cooper who goes deep with them about his battle for sobriety, how fatherhood has changed him, his move into therapy. But part of the conversation is informed by their shared history as struggling actors in Hollywood. In fact, you learn that Arnett and Cooper lived in the same apartment building back in the day but there's also some fun dish about awkward encounters Cooper had at Oscar parties, even after he achieved his success. And people are like, really? Who are you? So check it out. It's called Smartless. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. And Ashley, how about you? Well, my book of the week this week comes courtesy of Patrick Radden Keefe, who's the wonderful journalist behind most recently the best selling book on the Sackler family called Empire of Pain. He also authored Say Nothing about the Irish Troubles and has also written several books on people smuggling, like the snakehead. And now we have a new collection of his magazine work for The New Yorker. It's called Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. I mean, clearly right up our alley. And in the issue of Airmail this week, Keith spoke with Jim Kelly, our book's czar, in a very enlightening and wide-ranging Q&A, not only about the subjects in this new book, but also about his creative process. So highly recommend the book itself, the essay collection, Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks, as well as reading the conversation between Patrick Radden Keith and our own Jim Kelly in the issue of Airmail. Okay, Michael, well, we've lost one of our own this week, a marvelous artist who has contributed many memorable illustrations to Airmail, has died of a heart attack, Duncan Hanna. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Duncan, I had the privilege of meeting a few years ago, and he was one of these people you move to New York and hope to meet. He was an artist, an acclaimed artist, a writer, a contributor to Airmail. He was, as my old pal Glenn O'Brien once described him, the Harry Mancini of the New Wave. He crossed all these different worlds, starting in, he moved to New York from Minneapolis in the 1970s, fell in with the CBGB crowd, and he started to paint. He appeared in movies with Debbie Harry, and wrote a terrific acclaimed book, if you ever want to read it, called 20th Century Boy, which was derived from his 1970s diaries as he sort of made his way through New York City. But I would just encourage you to please read two 
wonderful remembrances of them by airmail contributors, one by Mark Razzo and the other by Michael Lindsay Hogg, the acclaimed film, television, and theater director, and someone you saw most recently in the Beatles documentary. But both of them have very personal and touching remembrances of Duncan and reminding us what we've lost in losing him. Thank you so much. On that note, Michael, we thank you all so much for joining us, and will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.